Okay, here we go. September 29th, uh, 2013, lecture discussion number 125 on the Book of Romans. I'm going to start today. I got a couple of letters, and I forgot Sharon's letter. It was just brilliantly funny, as she always is. But I got another one from, uh, that's Sharon from Texas. I got another one from David uh, from Nebraska, and I wanted to read this. And uh, he says, um, um, he actually wrote me a letter, so it's a real letter versus a, a um, email. Dear Pastor Chronister, uh, why all the concern about the website? I think it's great. It's the easiest to sort, find, and download sermons of any of the sites I visit. The webmaster really needs to be commended. Whoever is writing the notes also deserves a thanks. Maybe an extra cookie to go first in the buffet line. These jobs are essential and take a great deal of time. Unfortunately, they are behind the scenes, the people that do this, and thus frequency, frequently going unnoticed and unthanked. So, I want to thank you all for what you do. And then he sends me a link uh, that, I, um, that I'll talk about again that deals with Psalm 22. A friend passed this along to me. It's about Matthew 27:46. That's part of our subject today. He agrees with you. So there is one out there, huh? or at least as much as most people agree with you. Now, I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> but don't get too warm and fuzzy about it. Uh, I found an article that uh, about original sin and Eve in which the writer mocked the idea that Adam had any love for Eve that could have motivated him. So that's, by the way, the popular view for Adam is that Adam was just an idiot and he did not love his wife at all. And so he was not motivated by that at all, which, of course, is ridiculous. You're talking about an intellect and a perfect human being before he falls. There is a long way to go. Let's see. Uh, there is. I'm back to his letter now, David's letter from Nebraska. There is a long way to go, but I feel I might be starting to get it. All of the comparisons of Adam and Christ have always seemed to fall short, but yours seems to be the most defensible. If I get something put on my tombstone, that's what I want it to be. And so that's a great honor that Dave from Nebraska sent me. I just don't know what to do, what to say to it. I want that on my tombstone. His view was the most Christ-honoring and the most defensible. If I go down with that, then I'm okay. That's the best I could do. He finishes with, keep up the good work and we'll get there. In Christ's love, David from Nebraska. David, very... I'm very thankful that you're out there. He has wonderfully wise things to say when he takes the time to write us. So I just wanted to start with that because it fit in so well, as you'll see. And as you know, we are currently um, analyzing Christ's fourth of his seven sayings from the cross, which is, of course, Psalm 22.1. And I'm going to start with a familiar rant to you, as I said in the announcements, but it's, it's not that familiar to the people on the Internet that they just don't. Uh, come regularly, they come and go. And I'm asking again that all of you folks that are listening to this Psalm 22 um, um, uh, series go back to the beginning of it, which I think is about number 122, perhaps. And we are at 125. So this is the fourth or the fifth. It could be 120. Could I, I don't keep track. I'm sorry. But uh, go back and find it and listen to each and every one because they build on each other. And if you don't, for you folks out there, uh, uh, you're not going to follow it very well. And I want you to, because I think this is one of the most important subjects that you can ever know as a Christian. The ability to defend the truth about what Christ said on the fourth saying from the cross, or Psalm 22.1. Now, we're asking primarily, why did the God of creation, and that's John 1.3, by the way, I'll put that on the board for you. Why did the God of creation... That is how Jesus Christ is described in the Bible as the God of creation. Why did he, Christ, select out this particular verse, Psalm 22, 1, of all of the Old Testament? He could have picked anyone, but this is the one that he knew would be absolutely perfect, because he's omniscient, at the point at which he said it, the fourth saying. And he not only said it at the fourth saying, but uh, he said it in this amazingly loud voice. So, again, the questions are, why did he pick it? To whom did the great I am? He calls himself, by the way, John 8, 58. 
John 8:24, he calls himself the great I am of Exodus 3:14. Why did the great I am select this verse, Psalm 22:1? Why did the Lord God Almighty, that's Revelation 1:8 and 4:8, So let me repeat that again. He is the God of creation. He is the great I am. And he's the Lord God Almighty. Unless you're mistaken. Now, what percentage of the church thinks that's true, by the way? What I just said, I would say less than 5% of the church today thinks it's true. They have a completely different view of Christ. They do not think that's true. They might say it, but then they will say something immediately opposite and contradictory. That was the most frustrating thing I've ever heard is the prayers uh, from the pulpit that denigrate the position that is Christ. But back to the, my question. Why did the Lord God Almighty choose to say Psalm 22.1 in the loudest of, of his voices just as he did with his seventh saying. Why did he pick it? To whom did he say it to? And why did he say it in a loud voice? To sum that up. And the process of answering those three fundamental questions leads uh, the, the students, I hope you're the students, leads us to, to dissect the entire chapter of Psalm 22, starting with the title. And if you've been here, this is repeating, and I'm pounding it in and pounding it in. The title is critically important. David, King David, Inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote a song. It's a song, and it is Psalm 22. And he titled the song, like any songwriter would, he titled it, The Hind of the Morning. Knowing why King David chose to designate his song such is critical to determining why Christ made it the fourth same. In other words, the title to the song explains the chapter. And the chapter of 22.1, or 22 of Psalms, explains the title. So that's basically where we've been. Going verse by verse, actually word by word through Psalm 22. And what we're doing every time we do that, we're trying to figure out who said it, and to whom and why and when it was said. And that, by the way, is the Hebrew law or the Hebrew principle of double reference. We'll get to that again here in a minute. And it's very important that you understand that Psalm 22 is written in the Hebrew double reference format. If you think one person said all of this, you would be mistaken. And it is clearly obvious that that isn't the case. And naturally, some of you have asked, as you should, and you've got to always ask it, what does the fourth saying of Christ from the cross, this song that is entitled The Hind of the Morning, what does all of this have to do with the book of Romans, chapter 5, 12 through 14, which you know is about Adam and the seed of the woman and the virgin birth and the resurrection of Christ? That's the how did we get here again question, right? As I go off into these uh, different areas and everybody goes, well, you're strained from the subject of Romans 5, 12 through 14. I'm not. Um, but uh, that's the most often question that I'm asked in my Klippenstein history here. And so uh, it's appropriate and uh, I don't ever want you to think it's not. How did I get from Romans 5, 12 uh, through 14 to Psalm 22? Hopefully that becomes obvious to you as we continue this. Anyway, in addition to all of that, you may have noticed that I started out today re-emphasizing this John 1.3, John 8.58, John 8.24, Revelation 1.8 and 4.8. God of creation, the great I am, the Lord God Almighty. Those are names, three names of Jesus Christ. I could have added uh, Isaiah 9, 6, which is his one title, Almighty God Everlasting Father. That's one of his names. So when you say Father God, you have to tell people who you're talking about, because who could you be talking about? Now, these are names that the Scriptures call 
the Bible calls Jesus Christ. And he calls himself the Lord God Almighty. And he calls himself the great I Am over and over and over and over again. Hundreds of times. And I'm saying it and repeating it um, because it's critical information. Our salvation, John 8.24, is interwoven with who the person of Jesus Christ really is. If you don't have who he really is, then you're in a weak position. This is the mystery of Proverbs 30, uh, verse 4, that asked this great question that was mysterious to the Jews. No one could seem to solve it. What is the name of God the Son? Or the angel of God is how the Jews would put it. What is the name of the angel of God? And so they asked, what is God's name and what is the Son's name? And that, by the way, is answered. That mystery is answered by Christ at John 3.13 to Nicodemus. So to put it in simple terms again, we must believe who he really is. You at least should call him by the names he calls himself. And we hardly ever do that. Again, John 8, 24. He says he is one and the same as the Father. John 10, 30. John 17, 11. John 17, 21. This sameness, this exactness in the Bible with respect to Jesus Christ and God the Father, it, unfortunately and, and sadly, it's very difficult for Christians today to process this sameness. They don't do it. I know they don't do it. They're really anxious to tell me they don't do it. Why am I bringing this up and ranting today? Because we're in Psalm 22. And this is where it comes up. The church today blows it here so badly it's not, I don't even know how to respond. And they confuse themselves and they confuse everybody that walks into their congregation. Because they cannot seemingly in an articulate way present what I just said. John 1, 3, John 8, 58, John 8, 24, Revelation 1, 8, 4, 8, Isaiah 9, 6. They never say it. How many? I can do a survey. How many of you have uh, gone to a church where they tell you that the name of Jesus Christ is Almighty God Everlasting Father? They ever refer to him that way. Don't raise your hand here. But again, this sameness, this exactness, critical, and failure to acknowledge the absolute, complete unity of Jesus Christ and God the Father causes catastrophic doctrinal error. To ignore it causes chaos. And it's going to happen today. I made the comment in the announcements for those that today on 60 Minutes, we're going to have chaos spread all over the country about Psalm 22. And this is, of course, what I'm talking about now is the doctrine of the Trinity or the triunity of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, or how the Jews would correctly also call it, the Lord God, the angel of God, and the spirit of God, right? Three persons, one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, Mark 12.29. The Lord our God is one. And the Lord our God, all three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, all the exact same. Genesis 3.22, he describes himself as us. It's in the plural, Elohim. Elohim. And it's how God describes himself. It is how Jesus Christ describes himself. If we fail to likewise describe God that way, we miserably collapse into blasphemy. An allegorical black hole that becomes... Practically, seemingly at least, impossible to climb out of. I hardly ever find somebody who climbs out of it. Once you're trapped in it, 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 this 
blasphemy, this miserable collapse of describing God as three separate persons and one is inferior. And that's what they do all the time. If Which one do they say is inferior to the Father? The Son. There's no inferiority. I lost a church person here, a congregant that was very faithful. She came up to me and was so angry. I've said this story before. So angry because I asked the question, when, if ever, is Jesus Christ inferior to the Father? In subordination to the Father? Is he subordinate to the Father for eternity? And her answer was, yes, he's inferior. And you say he's not, and I'm leaving. And I said, would you please tie it some more before you go? I get as much, never mind. (laughs) I didn't say that, but I sure wish I had. Anyway. Once you get into this Christ is inferior concept, even in your mind, you let it in there in any way, you're, you're going to be poisoned by it. And it is the poisoning that is exactly the same as the gourd plant in the book of Jonah. Also the Nicolaitans, by the way, it's the same issue. That's why whenever, that's why, by the way, it isn't a coincidence that Christ brings up the gourd plant and the worm in the midst of Psalm 22, or that the worm and the gourd plant are there in Psalm 22. Uh, he would know, wouldn't he, as the author of that, that this issue would show up someday. So we're going to have to deal with the scarlet or the crimson worm of Jonah, Psalm 22:6, as well as the true meaning of the messianic terms. I hear the messianic terms thrown around all the time. Son of man, John 12:34. Hardly anyone knows what that means today. They certainly don't take it back to Ezekiel where they need to. Or son of David, for example, Matthew 12:23. Just to raise two that are very misunderstood titles of the Messiah. And this fast approaching subject of the Messiah names is, is important in that it returns us to Romans 5:12 and Genesis 3:15. One of the names of the Messiah is the seed of the woman. That's Romans 5:12. That's how we get to Psalm 22. Another, always know the seed of the woman is another name for the coming Messiah. Something, by the way, that the, it's a mystery that the Jews have yet to solve the coming of the Messiah. They have all the prophecies and they couldn't, they still haven't solved it. And the, and the mystery to them is that the Messiah would be God. They never have got that. That the Messiah would be God himself who added perfect humanity. Notice how I said that. His humanity is perfect. Our humanity is not perfect. If you think you have perfect humanity, see me later. Just thinking that you have perfect humanity makes you imperfect. He is the God-man, or also, better put, Jesus God, as he calls himself in the Bible. And he would come twice. And the Jews couldn't reconcile the descriptions in the Old Testament and the, that referenced both Advents. They couldn't figure it out. They saw a sacrificial uh, suffering Messiah, if you will, and they saw those verses, and they saw those verses as contradictory with the conquering King Messiah verses. And so they never were able to figure out how we have these two verses that seemed to be opposites of each other. So they decided that instead of the Messiah coming twice, that there must be two Messiahs that are individual. And they call them that. Messiah ben Joseph is the sacrificial Messiah, and Messiah ben David is the king Messiah. And they think there's two of them. That's how they solved it. They never, instead of knowing that it was one Messiah, God in the flesh, who is man and God, the God-man that comes to the earth twice, which is obvious. But to this day, they don't see that. And hopefully you can recognize the original form of, of that error and how it has metastasized and now contaminates and pollutes the contemporary church. I bring all of this up at this point in our Psalm 22 study 
because, as fortune would have it, if you want to call it fortune, as we speak, as I speak, almost exactly as I'm speaking, a couple hours from now in our time, a well-known commentator of news on news and current events has co-written a book on the person of Christ. And he's embarking on a media blitz to promote said book today. I got to watch him through the week. Today is the day of the big advertising launch. He's going to be on a popular show and he's going to have a lot of time developed. I'm sorry, uh, devoted. And his message of this book is going to go everywhere. And for the sake of protecting the identity of the writer and for the sake of our discussion, I will refer to the authors uh, by refer to the author, I'm sorry, by his initials. Bill O'Reilly. His tome, as you know, is called Killing Jesus. Which, of course, is impossible and immediately exposes his authorship here as illiteracy. Jesus is who? Lord God Almighty. He says that himself. Creator of all things, the great I am, you cannot kill him. You cannot. It's impossible. He has to lay down his own life, which he says. John 10, right? And Mr. O'Reilly is trapped in the aforementioned black hole of blasphemy and is unsurprisingly content and smug in his illiteracy. And that is also not surprising. That is consistent with this position that he is espousing. And Mr. O'Reilly has gone on, as so many before him, into the path of apostasy because he does not know that the title of Psalm 22, he does not know that Psalm 22 is a song, and he does not know that the title of it is The Hind of the Morning. And the song, and what happens in, on the fourth saying of the cross, he extrapolates, because also a misunderstanding of Hebrews 5, 7, we'll get to that in the coming weeks, he extrapolates all of that out, and he comes up with this ridiculous position that is indefensible, that I could destroy in five minutes if they gave me equal time. I doubt that 60 minutes is going to play my rant after they're done with Mr. O'Reilly. If they did, we'd get, well, who knows what would happen. I'd probably be, uh, I was watching a show where a gentleman uh, made a comment, the character made the comment that uh, he recognized the, uh, the difficulty of fame. And so he avoided it at all costs. And that was very profound. Getting the, getting the attention of men is dangerous. Very few people, I don't know anybody that has ever handled it. And this particular character was willing that somebody else would have, whoever wrote this had a really good understanding of humanity. Whatever other, what other person would take the credit for what he was doing was fine with him. He wanted no credit. There's a lot of wisdom there. So I'm not asking for 60 minutes to come calling. And if they did, I would ignore them. I might ask them to help me. Uh, uh, back to the other comment. I might ask them for a tithe. So that we could get more chairs. Not that we need more chairs. We don't. We need less chairs. But we could get nicer chairs. Lazy boys that tilt with little speaker systems in it. That would be cool. I could get two or three more uh, um, monitors and such. Anyway. Mr. O'Reilly does not know the, that uh, Psalm 22 is a song and that it's titled uh, The Hind of the Morning. And he, he does not know, by the way, that Christ is always God. He doesn't know that. And he doesn't care either. If he did know it, he still wouldn't change because he doesn't care. Uh, God is never not. Jesus Christ is never not omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. Never not that. 
and the kenosis view that um, that is very common and that this book that he's going to put forth is going to represent. The kenosis view is a misinterpretation of Philippians 2.7, Hebrews 5.7, Matthew 26.36-39, among others. Psalm 22. And that kenosis view, all, a little bit of research, uh, most of the guys and women that, uh, that wrote about it are, are gone now. They've passed away hundreds of years ago, but they thoroughly discredited it. And it's easily and simply dismissed. That's why I know he doesn't care. Because he could find something that would destroy what he's presenting. He doesn't want to destroy what he's presenting. Not much effort is required. And as I said, Mr. O'Reilly doesn't care. He delights in his view that the person of Jesus Christ is not God. All the time. He loves that view. And the truth does not matter to him. And that, by the way, is a great lesson for me. I did not know that when I started preaching. I thought the truth would matter to people and learned otherwise. The truth does not matter. That's almost the, the um, motto of Cliffside. The truth does not matter to people, at least to the overwhelming number of people. What matters in this situation is book sales. Millions of people will read this book and millions of dollars will be made for what that's worth. Maybe you can turn millions of dollars here in a couple of months for a can of soup. Point of it is it's a financial endeavor and the truth doesn't matter to people. It does matter to God. And Mr. O'Reilly, someday it will matter to him. Uh, he has time to write a sequel. If he would just put any time at all, he would realize that his position is uh, is horribly flawed. And I'll wait for Mr. O'Reilly's sequel. I- I'm offering a title suggestion. Oops. Uh, I'll continue to breathe in the entering. Here's a couple of quotes that you may find interesting. From Mr. O'Reilly. He said it in front of millions of people. Jesus Christ was a regular guy just like you and me. If that is true, and it's not. If it were true, and it's not. But to grant the hypothetical, there is no salvation if that is true. None of us are saved and we are the most pitied. Here's another quote. Jesus Christ was greatly afraid of death. No. Let me repeat. Jesus Christ was. Jesus Christ was. See what he's done? It happens all the time. They'll say it all the time over and over. There's a couple of tricks, by the way, that people use now. You can pick them up all the time. When they want to condescend to you, especially on television, if they're arguing with you, you see this in the argumentative shows, they will always refer to their opponent by his first name, and they'll repeat his first name over and over again. Well, you see, Steve, yes, Steve. Hey, Steve. By the way, Steve. Steve, 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 Steve. It is very, very common. It is a trick, and you should spot it immediately. The other thing they like to do is refer to Christ in the past tense. They do it all the time. They want to do it. They know they're doing it. Jesus Christ was this. Jesus Christ was that. Jesus Christ was. Jesus Christ was. And it's just as obvious and just as intentional as constantly using the first name of their opponent in a condescending way. No. Jesus Christ is. That is why he calls himself, as you know, the great I am. Jesus Christ is, he's, and always is. He is the God who says to us, fear not, I will never, no, never, ever leave you or forsake you. That's what he says. Deuteronomy 31.6 and Hebrews 13.5. He is never the God who fears anything. He do, he's the one that says, fear not. He would never fear anything. He certainly would not fear death. Death is, is, I don't know how to describe it to him. I can't describe it. 
It is so weak in comparison, so puny, if you will. There is no, it has no value at all. And fear, as you know, is sin. If he feared death, he would have sin and none of us would be saved again. And he has no sin. And fear cannot exist alongside of omnipotence and omniscience. It cannot. You cannot put fear in omnip- omnipotence and omniscience together. So when you say that Jesus Christ fears death, you are saying he has no omnipotence and he has no omniscience and therefore he has no omnipresence and therefore what have you said about him? He's not God and you've destroyed salvation. No. There's my, I'm, I'm ranting, I know, I have to. You laugh, but I do have to. Mr. O'Reilly is greatly mistaken, and the Bible even calls him that. doesn't call him by name. But Christ says, you're greatly mistaken. You don't know what the Scriptures say. Mr. O'Reilly does not know what the Scriptures say, and he doesn't care that he doesn't know. He doesn't know, and he doesn't know that he doesn't know, and he doesn't care that he doesn't know that he doesn't know. That's what we're up against. And millions of people will buy this book. And they will all go to church. And there will be the pastors who will spew it right back at them. And they will all be wrong. And that's why I'm devoting this time right now to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is where the battle is. And right now only one side is being heard. And that is the side that dishonors Christ. That's why I read David's letter. I want to have the Christ-honoring side every time. The one that lifts him up the highest, because I can't get him high enough, can I? So I can't, I can't screw up here. The strongest position, the best position that I can have on Christ is still not enough. Mr. O'Reilly is going to have the worst possible position on Christ that he can find. I'll take my choice, and I'll take my chances. And I recognize that Mr. O'Reilly's side has more soldiers and more microphones. My side is very few. I've been in meetings of pastors and had this discussion and was stunned at how few of them would defend the Christ-honoring side. I'm not stunned anymore. I know, there's few. Okay, last week, now we're going to start the sermon. See how this all works? The rant first, start the sermon. People think I'm kidding. You know that I'm not. Psalm 20, that by the way, all of that was not for you, was it? I'm not worried about you folks here. Psalm 22, 6 through 8, let's read it together. We're fighting the fight today. My whole goal is that no one buys this book. Not one person, not even his own family. I want him to autograph a whole bunch of them and just get tired. Not one person buys this book or any book like it, of which there are thousands and thousands. Here we are. But I, the worm, and no man, as you know, that is the scarlet crimson worm of Jonah, the wood, uh, the worm that attaches itself to wood and bleeds out, if you will, releases this red uh, 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 fluid that is turned into the scarlet crimson color, the red color that is used in the Jewish um, priesthood. It is what colored the scarlet cord of Rahab. It is all over the Bible. This word that means that this translated worm here is referring to a worm. It is the worm of Joseph, uh, Joseph, sorry, Jonah. And Christ is saying that he is the worm of Jonah right there. A reproach of men and despised by the people. He's saying, I am the worm and I am going to be despised by the people. What's the obvious question right now? Which people is he talking about? And those, what's the obvious question? Who are the those? And those who see me, what's the obvious question? Where is it? Where are they seeing him? Those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, which is a way of saying they sneer at me. They shake the head. 
And this is what they say. He trusted in the Lord. Let him save him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Okay, that's Psalm 22, 6 through 8. And this is where the first incident of the Hebrew principle of double reference uh, or the alternation, if you will. This is where it comes. Psalm 22, 6 through 8 is where Jesus Christ first appears in the chapter. You have to know that. Up to now, verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 are not about Christ. This is where it is about Christ, the first place. So what's the obvious question now? Who is verse 1 and 2 about and who is verse 3, 4 and 5 about? Verse 6 is very important. It's a delineation. It marks the point where a change occurs. Verse 1 through 5 are not. Let me make sure I get the paper done right here. I think I'm sticky. No. Verse 1 through 5, verses 1 through 5, are not applicable to Jesus Christ. They have nothing to do with him. What's the obvious question? And who are they about? Verses, verse 6 is the first place in the, in the passage of the entire chapter, first place in the chapter, where Christ is now speaking. So we must determine now who do the first five verses apply to. And they're actually cut into two sections, which I think is correct. I, whoever did that in my Bible, I, I'm proud of them. I think they're correct. And we have to decide who's our choices. By the way, um, let me read verse 4. Our fathers trusted in you. What's the obvious question there? Who's the our? Who says our fathers trusted in you? What group of people says that? So we have to determine who the first five verses apply to. And our choices really are restricted, I'm going to submit, to King David or the nation of Israel. Either David is talking about himself or he is talking representing Israel. And now we have to say, uh, uh, when in history or when in the future, because it is a song, but it is also a prophecy. We know that, by the way, now. When in history are they spoken by the people who say them? Christ says, verse 6. And he says, verse 7. He does not say, verse 8. I think that's obvious, huh? So, who says verse 8? And by the way, is the person who says verse 8 the same person that says verse 1? Is it the same person that says verse 4? Our fathers trusted in you. Who says what and who do they say it to, right? And obviously, once you begin to see that I have these three possibilities, that helps me solve it. I have the nation of Israel, I have David himself, and I have Christ himself. And David is a great type of Christ. Uh, that, that has me, well, I have to be concerned about that uh, typology. But nonetheless, once you figure out who is possible to have said it, and verse 8, by the way, is another group of people as well. Whoever those are, uh, that helps me solve uh, uh, quite a bit about this. The first two, by the way, as you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You are so far from helping me. You are so far from my words and my groaning. My God, you don't hear me. Christ would never say that, as we've discussed previously. That's an irrational complaint, and it is called a complaint. It is called the complaint of Psalm 22. And it's made against who? Because, you know, God does not leave you. He says so. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. No, 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 never. So whoever says, why are you forsaking me, is what? Irrational. So who is irrational and when are they irrational? Are you saying Christ is irrational? By the way, Mr. O'Reilly's book is saying Christ is irrational. Which means none of us are saved. Including him. He doesn't know that. And he doesn't care. But that complaint is being made against the character of God. You have left me. You promised to stay with me and you have left me. It's an accusation. It's made by somebody who doesn't trust God. See, our fathers trusted in you. And that takes you right back to the first verse. Whoever said the first verse does not trust in God. So who is it that trusts in God? Who is it that doesn't trust in God? Right? <coughs> now, at verse 6, 
here comes the scarlet worm of Jonah. After the irrational complaint, after the rebuttal to the irrational complaint, which is 3, 4, and 5, now Christ comes in and solves the mystery of the scarlet worm of Jonah. By the way, only Jesus Christ could or would have said this about himself. No one else can say it about themselves. I know that because only Jesus Christ knew the meaning of the crimson worm and of the poisonous plant. I have a crimson worm and I have it in contrast to a poisonous plant. Do you know the story? Or scarlet worm, if you want. I have this fight going on. The plant has a plan. It's poisonous. Who's underneath the plant? Jonah is. Does he know he's underneath a poisonous plant? No, he doesn't know. Does he like the poisonous plant? Yes, he does. God sends the worm, which is who? Himself. To do what? Kill the plant. Before what? Before it kills Jonah. Absolutely right. Only Jesus Christ knew the meaning of the crimson worm and the poisonous plant. And he solves the mystery of Jonah, chapter 4, by being the worm. That's the only thing that solves it. No other explanation solves the, the meaning of the poisonous plant and the crimson worm, except the crimson worm is Christ himself. It's all that solves it. And, and, he, and so he does this from the cross, essentially. He solves a great mystery. Jonah loved the poisonous plant, but the key, of course, is that Jonah was unaware that the plant left alone, if it were not killed, would have caused the death of Jonah. And Jonah loved something that was a deadly poison. Let me put that word on there again. A deadly what? Poison. How do I get back to Romans 5.12? Because Adam is what? Poison. Noah is what? Poison. So here's where you have to study all the poisons to get the understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Notice the poison once again is a theme. When you see poison, think Adam, think Eve. So Psalm 22, 6 through 8 begins with this marvelous scarlet worm reference and then shifts because I am the worm and no man a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. And then it talks about what those people say. So first he identifies himself as the worm. And then it shifts to those who see me. And those who see me are described. The those are described. How are they described? You'll be able to find them. He describes them. He says... There's going to be those who see me, and this is what they will say. And so all you have to do now is what? We'll find them. Because this is what they say. We can find the those. But first notice how this section is phrased. I am the worm. And Christ knows that this is the case. The crimson worm has to kill the poisonous plant. And so I have that, if you will, this dualism here, this battle between these two. The plant is trying to kill Jonah before the worm can kill the plant. So I have the worm against the plant and I have the idiot. Jonah, by the way, wrote that and describes himself all through it as the idiot. That's an amazing thing. He makes himself the villain of his own biography. Who does that? An extraordinary man. Who had a fantastic humility. Didn't start that way. I am the worm. So the obvious question is, if Christ is the worm, then who is the poisonous plant? And who is 
I'm going to go even more specific. He knows that he's the worm. And he says so in Psalm 22. And he quotes the first verse of Psalm 22 from the cross. So somebody in front of him is who? Jonah? About to be killed by the who? Poisonous plant. That's what's going on at the crucifixion. That's why he quotes Psalm 22. Verse 6 is the key. He would know that, wouldn't he? Obviously, the those and the they who shake their head, who sneer and shoot out from the lip and say exactly, word for word, verse 8, and they say it exactly, word for word, he trusted in the Lord, let him save him, let him deliver him since he delights in him. Word for word, they say that in Matthew 27, 43. Who said it? There the poisonous plant that is killing whoever Jonah is representing, and Christ is trying to kill the plant from the cross. Now, who said it? You can identify who the poisonous plant is. So it's obvious, isn't it? Jesus Christ is the worm, and the Pharisees are the poison. They are that which is killing Israel. But Israel what? Loves them. Doesn't even know they're killing them. By the way, the people who fight for the Antichrist will love the Antichrist. And all the while, the Antichrist is planning for them to be killed. Who's going to kill them? The worm is. I think it's really fascinating as a coach for all these years that no one calls themselves the scarlet worms. No one calls themselves the mighty lambs. That's what Christ calls himself. I'm the worm and people will despise me. The people will despise me. I will be despised by the people. Who are the people? Jesus is the worm, the Pharisees are the poison, and that which is deadly but loved by Israel. Now go back to Eve there, right? The worm which is life-giving but is hated by the very people the worm is saving by sacrificing itself. Now I said last Sunday that Psalm 22, 6 through 8 is also a trap. Okay? Jesus always allows the Pharisees to try to trap him. They do it they did it thousands of times. We have it they had committee meetings. They're always doing it. And they set up all the time these little things to trap him, to get him and Christ in trouble. And each trap that the Pharisees try results in catastrophe for the Pharisees. Christ answered every question they asked him because every question they asked him they thought was an unsolvable paradox and he solved every single paradox. Everyone. That should have given them a clue. Uh-oh, we're not dealing with the average person here. He revealed the answer to every mystery. And that's what he's doing when he's quoting Psalm 22. He's solving the mystery of the crimson worm from the cross. He's solving who, because they asked all the time, who is the worm? Who is the poisonous plant? And he solves it. I'm the worm. Whoever says, verse 8, is the poisonous plant. And we should expect that he would solve every mystery, right? Because he is the I am, the creator God, the Lord God Almighty. Good grief. He's not lucky. He's the omniscient creator God in the flesh waiting to be revealed as such. And he is revealing himself as such, but the blind just don't see him. In Revelation 1, 13 through 18, it's impossible to miss who he really is. Also see Isaiah 6. Now, this fourth saying is three things um, that he says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is three things. It's an announcement to the angelic host, both the fallen and the unfallen. It's a message uh, to Jesus' beloved nation of Israel. And then it is an un- unescapable snare for the brood of vipers, the sons of Satan that are the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 13 through 39. They are exposed for who they are and condemned. They lie about who they are. There's a big shock, huh? 
They're not going around saying, we're killing you. We're the poisonous plant. They're going around saying, we're the only way you can be saved when the opposite is true. They are telling people that they, can be, that they will save them when the absolute opposite. They are killing them. He says so. You're making them every more a son of hell than yourselves. That's what Christ says to them. Finally, religious sects that are doing that today. So how is this a trap? Well, consider that the statements by the Pharisees at the base of the cross are eventually said by everyone who was there. The political class, the common people, the religious class, the scholars, the whole crowd says, verse 8, Psalm 22, word for word, word after word, exactly the same, Matthew 27, 39 through 44. So now ask the obvious question. How do you get a crowd that size? Thousands of people. How do you get them all? I've been at basketball games my whole life, football games, baseball games. I've had crowds at all of those events as I was coaching or playing. How do you get everyone to say the same phrase? Happens today. I've got to get everybody there. I've got thousands of people. How do I get them all to say the same phrase? Here's the phrase, he trusted in the Lord, let him save him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. How do I get him to say that? Just as I explained it. Even the two thieves say it to him. So do the Romans, Matthew 27, 44. Even the two thieves say, he trusted in the Lord, let him save him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. How do I get the two thieves to say it? How do I get all the Roman soldiers to say it? How do I get 2,000 people to say it? How did that start? Who planned that? Or do you think it was just coincidence? Thousands of people to repeat the same chant. And what's Christ doing? Waiting. That's a clue, by the way, that he's God, because God likes to wait. He's as omniscient God and the author of Scripture, the Word made flesh, he knows all things. He's the only one at this scene that knows that everyone is chanting word for word Psalm 22, 8 in unison. Everyone. Now his disciples are over here, his friends, the whole crowd. Who knows? 5,000 maybe, screaming. And he waits. God waits. Because you see, who in Psalm 22 says, He trusted in the Lord, let him save him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Who says that in Psalm 22 in the story? The worm does not say that. David does not say that. The people say that. And the ones who are trying to kill somebody says that. Who are they trying to kill? What's the title of the song? The hind of the morning. The people that are trying to kill the hind of the morning. And now you know who the hind of the morning is, don't you? It is not Christ. And it is not David. The people who say, He trusted in the Lord, let him save him. He Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Those are the poisonous plants and the pursuers of the hind of the morning. That is who says that verse. The ones who chase down and devour and shred and eat and kill the hind of the morning. Those are they that say Psalm 22.8. And they say it to the scarlet worm. And Christ leaves no doubt. I, here's what he's saying. I am the worm. I'm the scarlet worm. And the ones that are going to kill the hind of the morning will say this to me. And he leaves no doubt as to who are the killers of the hind of the morning. Again, Jesus Christ is not the hind, nor is King David. And the Pharisees, through this process, are then exposed. They actually do what? They chant what? For hours. They chant their own confession. He makes them. He doesn't. He puts a situation together where the greatest liars of all of history are now finally confessing the truth. 
They're, instead of saying this, they could have said, we are the killers of the hind of the morning. We are the poisonous plant. We are killing Israel. That's what he made them say. Over and over and over again, probably thousands of times. Did they know they were saying that? Had no idea. Didn't know. Until when? Until he says, Psalm 22.1. When he says Psalm 22.1, everybody there now knows, oh my, we are in Psalm 22. And we are chanting verse 8. Verse 8 is chanted by evil liars who are killers. We are not the good guys here. We are the bad people. He exposes them. Whoever started that chant. Sooner or later, people are going to turn around and go, you're the one that started the chant. You're the ones that encouraged us all to chant this. We are chanting verse 8 of Psalm 22. And the Pharisees are caught. And he ends it, Christ does, he stops it in a loud, deafening, painful voice that only he has. He quotes and sings, if you will, that first verse of the song. And the Pharisees are caught. The ones who always lie have for once told the truth thousands of times over and over again and confessed that they are the killers of the hind and that they are the poisonous gore that the worm has to stop from killing Jonah. And they tell the truth for once. And by the way, they say an amazing thing. He trusted in the Lord. Did Christ trust in the Lord? Yes. They actually identify him as somebody that trusts in God. Because he is God. It's true that Jesus Christ trusts in the goodness of the triune Godhood. That's, by the way, what it means. You trust in God's goodness. And God delights in Christ. That's true, too. They say that. God delights in him. They actually say... This is the worm. He's good. And God loves him. We hate him. That's why we chant. We're killers. And all of that, by the way, is going on there. The triune Godhead delights in its plan of salvation. And they get two admissions, or two admissions come from the killers. Exposed by God in front of thousands using a prophecy, a song that comes true right before their eyes that no one even knew was going to happen. Who could have done this? Who puts this together? Who orchestrates something like this so perfectly? Only God does this. That's God up there. God is the worm. One final thought for today is the musicians come. Psalm 22 contains the last words of the hind of the morning. That's important to know that. Just immediately prior to being eaten, as the hind of the morning is being eaten, it gets out these words. And the words are this complaint. My God, my God, you've left me to die. My God, you didn't hear me. My God, you don't listen. I'm dying here. You've left me alone to die. That complaint is against the character of God. They do not trust in his goodness. And what does God do being accused of of leaving and forsaking and abandoning and not hearing? What does God do? He saves the hind. That, by the way... Verse 12, or 22, 21. We haven't got there yet. He saves them. Psalm 22, 21 is the hind admitting that Hebrews 13, 5 is true and that their complaint is wrong. It's an admission that we were wrong to say this to God. And God answers as he always does with Deuteronomy 31, 6, Hebrews 13, 5. And though we complain, accuse him, he never leaves us, never forsakes us. He always saves us out of death, not necessarily from death. Does that make sense? Though we die, he will save us out of death. 
So I want you to realize that just prior to the killers destroying the hind, the hind screams out verse 21 or 22, 1. And other things. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And next week, we will move on to verse 9. And you have to figure out who's talking, when they're talking, and who are they talking to. It is really that basic. Let's rise and be dismissed.